Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. We're going to continue in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. So if you've got your copy of God's word, and I sure hope that you do, if you would turn or scroll to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we'll continue down through verse 11. And I've titled this sermon, Sin in the Camp, Sin in the Camp. Uh, God's people uh, are surging, it seems. They're, they're growing, they're flourishing. When we were here two weeks ago, the Spirit of God was indwelling them. They were being filled with the Spirit, and great things are happening. People are coming to saving faith, miracles are happening, all sorts of good stuff. They're being motivated and compelled to be generous with one another as Jesus was generous to them. That's exhibited by the the radical giving of Barnabas. And so all this good stuff is happening. And then today, as we'll see in a moment, things go a little sideways. But before we get there, I want to remind you of a story in the Old Testament. You recall the book of Joshua, where the people of Israel are battling their way into the promised land. You remember the first city that they encounter that they're supposed to take is the city of Jericho. And do you remember how they took the city of Jericho? It's just, you just go walk around the wall, right, for seven days and blow some trumpets. Just obey God and the walls are going to fall. And what they do? They obeyed God and the walls fell. And there was just one little caveat that God had about the taking of Jericho. Do you remember what it was? Don't, don't take stuff. The silver and gold is for God and everything else is devoted to destruction. Just leave it there. It's not for you. We don't want the idols. We don't want the pretty cloaks. We don't want any of that stuff. Just trust God to provide for you. Just, uh, that's the only rule. Just, just don't take stuff. But there was a guy named Achan, and he took some stuff. He took some silver and some gold, and he also found a nice little tunic, right? And he's like, I'm going to grab that tunic as well. He took them. Nobody knew, and he hid them. It didn't seem to be a problem, right? Nobody knew, nobody cared. didn't seem to be a problem until the next battle that the Israelites had to fight. They were supposed to go up against the puny little city of Ai. They were like, man, Joshua, we don't need very many people to take Ai. Let's just take 3,000 guys. We'll be, we'll be good. And you know what happened? They took their 3,000 guys and they got their tails whooped. 36 people died. They tuck-tailed and run. They lost their courage and were like, what is going on? Israel just walks around Jericho for a week and Jericho falls and everything's great. They're just walking in the promised land. And in the very next battle, little old AI beats Israel. What is going on? And here's the Lord's assessment in Joshua 7. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. God exposes sin in the camp. And Achan, like the soldiers who went ahead of him, 
pays with his life. In today's passage, the church is in a similar place to where Israel was centuries before, after their first victory at Jericho. The community, the growing church, the the community of those that's following Jesus as King is, is growing. And the external opposition that they faced by temple leaders arresting the apostles, Peter and John, the opposition has been withstood and they have, in a sense, won a victory. And they are of one heart and of one soul. And the wealthy, like Barnabas, are joyfully stepping up to meet the needs of others. You know what the New Testament says about the wealthy in the church? It says, don't single them out for special recognition. But do call upon them for special sacrifice. And Barnabas gave, and he gave generously, and he gave for the joy of the Lord and for the good of the church. And everything seems wonderful. The first real test of the church only strengthens the church, leading them to deeper and greater levels of sacrifice. They're, they're on a roll, like the Israelites rolling through Jericho. And then, boom, we turn to chapter 5. Hear with me the word of God. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out. And buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, She fell down and breathed. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. God, what a What a sobering text of Scripture. God, I pray we would feel the weight of this text. God, that we would be reminded of your holiness. That we would recognize the connection between the purity of your church and the power that you desire for your church to have. God, help me to to be faithful in explaining your word and representing you this day. 
I need your assistance to navigate this text with both grace and truth and love. God, help me in that, I pray, for your glory and your namesake. Amen. This is a tough passage. It's not a passage that if you preach topically, you would necessarily ever hit upon. But we work our way through books of the Bible, and this is God's Word. And what this passage tells me, before I even get to the notes, the manuscript is this. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. God is holy. He desires holiness for and from His people. Not a holiness you can produce on, an, on your own, but one that He desires to build into you. So here we have God's true people. We have true Israel following King Jesus, passing their first major test. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament did coming out of Jericho. And there's a sin against the Lord that once more threatens to undermine the church in the pursuit of her mission. And I don't want you to miss this, church. An individual's willful sin to promote themselves at the expense of God's people and the glory of Christ is not trivial to Jesus. And it's not trivial to the Holy Spirit. One person's charade can hinder an entire church. And it is therefore the concern of the whole church. God saves individuals into church families where they are held accountable to God and to one another. We don't bring as Americans our rights into the church and cling to them. We forsake our rights for the sake of our king in community with one another. We welcome the examination of a holy God through his people such that we would not be deceivers and liars and contrivers, but that we would endeavor to live holy lives. And in this case, what we just read is that God graciously takes the sinners out of the church to preserve the power and the unity in the church rather than sending the church into their next battle compromised by sin. More than a big church, we need a Jesus-focused, purified church. So what can we learn from this passage? First, I want you to see in verses 1 through 3, we've got to understand how Satan works. He's already worked from the outside, threatening the apostles, Peter and John, leading them to be assaulted and uh, arrested by the temple leadership. So we know that he works on the outside, but I think we have underestimate the degree to which Satan desires to work on the inside. Satan works from the outside, and he works on the inside. If there's something that I've learned as a pastor's kid, as a deacon, and as a pastor myself, it is this. Satanic attack is real. 
when the church begins to win battles out there, Satan will shift strategies and he will try to bring sabotage right in here. Now, Satan is not God. He is not omnipresent. He can't be all places at all times, but he's got demons as well doing his bidding. But in this case, of all the places that Satan could be in the world, the church is growing, it's expanding, the Spirit is filling them, they're being generous. And of all the places Satan could be, maybe perpetuating a murder somewhere or somebody stealing something somewhere randomly, where is he? He's in the one place in the whole world where there's a community that is growing and following King Jesus. He shows up and he fills the heart of a member of the church of God. Satan hates the church. He hates the church. More than somebody randomly doing good out there in the world, he does not want the church to succeed in giving glory to Christ. So what does he do? What does this deceiver do? He comes into the church and he tries to take us out by leading us to make the church about us. That's the work of Satan. He knows that if we make the church about me and my ministry and how long I've been a member of the church and you don't know I'm a deacon of the church, everybody's getting their church chits. Y'all know what a chit is, right? Well, you don't know how many little chits that I've got. I've been to the church 20 years. Well, I've been doing this for 100 years. Well, great. Is it about Jesus or is it about you? And Satan is at work the moment that we come into church and we make it about me, my, rather than about King Jesus. Remember what has just happened. The Spirit filled the full number of those who believed with boldness. Now in verse 1, we read that little word of contrast, but. Yes, there are Spirit-filled, generous Barnabases in the church, but there is also an Ananias who conspires with his wife, Sapphira, to deceive the church. When Ananias arrives with only a portion of the proceeds of the sale of his property, Peter calls him out. Now, apparently, he could have brought all the proceeds of his property. They must not have had real estate agents. Because he'd sell anything around here, 6% off the top, right? Then the government's going to take their cut, right? Because we've got property taxes. You pay taxes on what you make and then what you buy and then you have a car that's 20 years old but it's got thousand dollars of value and the government's going to get its piece. But in this case, praise God, they apparently didn't have real estate agents. If you're a real estate agent, I love you. You do great work. That's not my point, right? Just a little rub, little dig at at the government. No property taxes, apparently. You just bring it all. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, You say, well, Ananias never said that he was bringing it all. No, but he conspired using what Barnabas did with his wife to make it look like he was bringing everything. And Peter calls him out. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that unrepentant sins are not to be papered over in the church, but pointed out and dealt with. In cases of sin that display a flagrant disregard for God's truth or that clearly put self ahead of the church, this is especially true for the church. So 
Peter confronts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he confronts Ananias in verse 3, and he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When the church is filled with the Spirit, Satan can oppose the Spirit-filled church by filling just one member. He needs just one deacon. He needs just one 3D group leader or one staff member to make it about themselves rather than about the Savior to sabotage the work of the church. One key volunteer. While Satan and his demons cannot possess spirit-indwelled believers, Satan can still appeal to our fleshly pride and fill our hearts. Ananias' heart is filled by Satan. What does he fill our hearts with? He fills our hearts with agendas and attitudes and approaches that are anti-church and anti-Christ. And how do you know when you're in that zone, when you're promoting self and minimizing Christ? Notice that Satan fills Ananias' heart, verse 3, but Ananias, in verse 4, is still held responsible. Peter says to Ananias, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Satan wants to use you to hinder the holiness and the unity and the power of the church, but he can't make you do anything if you're in Christ. How did he fill his heart? He appealed to his pride. What does James tell us we must do in James chapter 4? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To resist the devil, we've got to battle pride. We've got to battle the flesh. We've got to submit ourselves to Christ in ongoing community and accountability with a local church. We must be firm in the faith, constantly reminded of the gospel, which tells us we've been saved at the high cost of Jesus' life into a community that is on mission, a community where we lay ourselves down so that Jesus will be lifted up. But in this case, it appears that Ananias and Sapphira are selflessly supporting the church. I mean, they're showing up with a gift. This is great. The church is behind budget. The pastor told them we were behind budget. They sold something and they put it in the black box. Everything's good. Sing hallelujah. No. We can even give with the wrong motivation. Satan's a sneaky little devil. I mean, look at, the, look at this text. They, they bring a gift, and it's not good. So the second thing we need to see is that we've got to recognize that Satan wants us to settle for hypocrisy rather than pursuing holiness. He wants us to put the mask on. He wants us to pretend like we're good, but not really deal with the heart. One of our members last week knew that I was preparing for this text, and she sent me a devotion that pointed out that a lover and a lady of the night do many of the same things, but they're very different. And you know what the difference is? Fundamentally, it's, it's motive. The difference is love. One operates for the love of self, and the other operates for the love of another. Barnabas gave for the love of Christ and the love of the church. Ananias gave for the love of himself. He and Sapphira were willing to deceive the church themselves, and if they could, the Lord, in propping themselves up rather than magnifying Jesus. 
In verse 4, Peter is clear. Ananias did not have to sell his property or give the proceeds to the church. The issue is not that he gave only a portion of what he received from the sale. It's that he misrepresented what he was doing. Peter says, and this is my paraphrase, before you sold it, didn't you own it? I mean, nobody made you sell your property, right? No. And after you sold it, wasn't everything you got from the sale of your property yours to do with it? What you wanted to do as you deem fit? Yes. Ananias' sin is not in the amount he gave. It's in pretending that he gave all, misrepresenting it. He kept back, verse 2 and 3, some of the proceeds for himself. This word kept back is the exact same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what Achan did in Jericho. It's the word that means to embezzle or to misappropriate. And church, I'm here to tell you, when we enter into a church and we serve for status or recognition or control or power or for any other self-promoting reason, then we are misappropriating the purposes of God for the local church. More than misappropriating money, Ananias misappropriated the purpose and the mission of the church. Ananias and Sapphira weren't motivated by the fame of the Messiah, but instead by their own name, their own standing, their own influence. Barnabas gives, the church is edified, Christ is magnified, and they're like, man, I'd like to, like to be a part of that, but I'd really like it more to be about me. These verses show us that motivation matters to God. We can memorize Scripture with the wrong motivation. We can pray beautiful prayers with the wrong motivation. We can give seemingly generous gifts with the wrong motivation. We can serve with the wrong motivation. How do we know? It's, it's when what we do and what we give is motivated by self-praise, position, or power rather than the praise of Christ. It's when we're trying to paper over a heart that is far from God rather than to let Christ deal with our heart that's far from God so that we might pursue Him. Tony Morita says that when we do this, we are spiritual posers. Satan wants us to live in hypocrisy rather than holiness. And in the case of Ananias, his wife was with him in this deception. It's mentioned twice. Do you see it in verse 1? Ananias is with his wife. And then again, he tells us in verse 2 that Ananias keeps some proceeds with his wife's knowledge. Wives, I have a word for you this morning. It's not my word, it's, it's from the word of God, and it's this. You're supposed to submit to your husband. Ephesians 5 is clear. But your submission to your husband is ordered under your submission to God. And if your husband is leading you to participate in something that dishonors God or deceives God's people, don't follow your husband. Confront him. You are his sister in Christ, assuming he's a believer. Confront him with the gospel, and if he will not repent, you take it to other believers in your local church, and if it must go to the church, it will, and he must be disciplined. This is the protection for a wife who is supposed to submit to her husband, be in community and fellowship with the local church. 
So should you submit to your husband? Yes, and you should do it with great joy. But if he's leading you and asking you to do something that is dishonoring and deceiving to God and undermines the gospel, then confront him. The difficulty with the hypocrisy and hidden agendas that we bring into the church is just that. They're hidden. Sometimes they're even hidden to ourselves unless we ask God in His grace to reveal it to us so that we would be about Jesus rather than about ourselves. Perhaps in the hearing of this message even now, maybe the Spirit is convicting you of something. Maybe He's showing you even now, man, I have evaluated local church. I've made the church so much about me and their chart of programs and did every little thing fit my box? Did I like every single song? Did I like the preacher's style? Did I like the stage? Well, I would prefer it to look more like this. I went into church and I had this whole metric that I was evaluating church. And if I look at it, I'm like, that's all about me. And I, I'm looking, I want to go to church, I want to look for Jesus to be exalted and magnified and the Spirit to be there and compelling us to be united in His mission and generous, not so somebody can look at me and pat me on the back, but so that Christ can be magnified. May Jesus cut through the hypocrisy of our lives and lead us to pursue holiness that we might have His power in pursuing His mission so that people can come to saving faith in Christ. Rather than losing battles like wimpy little AI. Next, next week's sermon, you'll see that the church moves forward in power. Why? Because Christ is purifying His church right, right now. Which brings us to the third point of the message. Church, we cannot play games with God. We can't play games with God. I don't know what I can say or do to make us feel this reality other than just say, look at the text. People fall dead at the feet of the apostles. Members of the first church of God fall dead at the feet of the apostles like that. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, Don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever someone sows, he will also reap. This is an illustration of that truth. As Ananias is confronted with his sin, he never even speaks. Did you know that you can lie without speaking? He lies by the appearance that he creates and he embraces and he falls down and breathes his last. This is not a heart attack. This is divine judgment and the church clearly understands it as such the young men got up wrapped the body and buried him i love that it was the young men it's like the young pros got any young pros here we might hopefully we don't have an assignment for you later today there's no mourning there's no funeral there's no notification of his wife in verse 7 we learn that about 3 hours goes by before she shows up can you imagine what she was thinking for those 3 hours like, he's going to go down there, he's going to give them the gift, and they're all going to celebrate him, and an hour goes by, and she's like, I mean, it doesn't take that long to drop off a gift. I understand they're a little excited, but where is he? Another hour goes by, are they throwing him a party? 
And if they are, why didn't they ask me to the party and, and minutes give way to hours and hours add up to multiple hours and it's about three hours and finally she goes to the apostles and, and I don't know what she was thinking because the text doesn't tell us, but I'm beginning to think and in between hour two and hour three, she's starting to go, who is this God that I conspired against? What's going on? Verse 7 tells us she's clueless about what has happened with her husband. Verse 8, Peter says, Is this how much you sold your land for? It's an opportunity to repent. She is confronted with the facts. She's got a chance to say, No, it's not. God, forgive me. But instead, she doubles down on the deception. And in verse 9, Peter announces the death of her husband, by pointing to the feet of those who had buried Ananias. And in verse 10, she falls down at the same feet where her sham, self-serving gift had been offered hours earlier. And like her husband, she breathed her last. The last thing she knows before she is judged by God is that her husband had been judged by God and then her body is buried right beside him. Everything about their gift, think about this church, everything about their gift on the outside looked like Barnabas' Barnabas's gift. It looked the same. On the outside, it looked the same. But on the inside, it looked very different. And they paid with their lives. Why? Because the mission of the church in magnifying Jesus, must not be held captive by the misplaced priorities and the manipulation of the church's members. God is more interested in the local church fulfilling her mission and magnifying His Son than He is in an individual member hanging out and being manipulative and deceptive and undermining the power of God among the people of God. Hypocrisy is an offense to the holiness of God. Making church about us, our agenda, our past service, our name, what we bring to the table, it offends a holy God to whom we owe all that we have and all that we are. Do you believe that? Verse 9. Ananias and Sapphira agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of God saves us. He indwells us. He's among us. And when we lie to the church, we are lying to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. And to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Do you see that, verse 5? So if you're, this is a, a quick pastoral sidebar, but if your friend who's a Jehovah's Witness says, well, I don't understand how there's three in one and how the Holy Spirit is God and the Father is God and Jesus is God, that's not possible. Well, just pull out your Bible and say, Verse 3, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, they lied to God. What is Peter saying? The Holy Spirit is God. I can't explain it entirely how it works, but the Holy Spirit is God and God is one. And to play games with the church is to play games with God. As Peterson writes, when Ananias lied to Peter and the church, it was a sin against the Spirit who creates and fills and sustains the church. Here's the lesson for us today, God will bury us before He lets us compromise His mission, His church, or His name. 
deceitful hypocrisy in the church will run headlong into the dangerous holiness of God. You say, well, that's pretty, that's pretty discouraging. Well, I've got something encouraging. On the other hand, the church will have power for the mission when we refuse to compromise on God's holiness and we pursue Him with great abandon. You know what the name Ananias means? I didn't until I researched it this past week. The name Ananias means Yahweh is gracious. That's interesting. Because when I read this passage, you're like, where's the grace of God in verses 1 through 11? You know what happened here? Ananias presumed upon God's grace. He presumed upon the meaning of his own name. He took God's grace for granted. And it caused him to take God lightly. He made God's grace about him rather than about the glory of Jesus. He wasn't just greedy, he was arrogant. And he was willing to lie about his giving to be seen as a leader. He thought, oh, you know, I've trusted Jesus, so it's okay. That sort of disregard for Jesus opened the door for Satan to fill his heart and to lie to the Holy Spirit, and God killed him. And you say, where's the grace in that? Well, let's go back to Joshua chapter 7. What happened? 36 men lost their lives because of the sin of Achan. They went into the second battle not knowing about the sin that was in the camp, and it hurt everybody. But in this case... In the New Covenant, God says, I'm just going to take them out before they go into the next battle. That's the grace of God. Preserving the rest of His people to not be compromised in the mission. So let that be a warning to any of us who would sign up to lead and say, I'm going to be a tither, I'm going to be a giver, I'm going to be a deacon. Which it says, in our Constitution, deacons will give a minimum of a tithe of their income. Don't sign up to be a deacon and lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to the church about what you're doing. Because it will devalue, it will compromise the power of the church in the pursuit of the gospel. And you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting a target on your back. You're saying, I'm telling my pastor and my church... I've been ordained by the church, I've been set apart by the church, but I'm not doing anything with my income for the church. That I couldn't get a more clear application of the text than that. Don't do that. If you're doing that, resign before you die. To intentionally misrepresent ourselves to the church is to lie to God. When we use the church for our ministry and have little regard for corporate worship, we are in the danger zone. When we grumble and complain privately while we're leading publicly and smiling and saying we're supportive and okay, we are in the danger zone. When the church is a platform for self rather than a people who we love, we are in the danger zone. And certainly... When we lie about what we're giving, we're in the danger zone. This is Satan's secret sauce. He even tried to get Jesus with it, didn't he? You remember in the wilderness, what does he say to Jesus? I'll give you the wealth of the nations if you'll bow down to me. He even tried to tempt Jesus with this, and Jesus said, no way. But Judas, Satan entered into Judas, and he betrayed our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And now he's trying to sabotage the church in the same way, and God takes them out. 
living a Christian life that is about you and privatized and solo, that has no regard for the church, God's not happy with that. 1 Corinthians 11, do you remember what happens? Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he says, you're taking the Lord's Supper, some of you are taking the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, meaning the church. And therefore, when you take the Lord's Supper, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. He says this, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. To take the Lord's Supper and not care about the people with whom you take it is to be in dangerous territory. Because God is holy and gracious. He took Ananias and Sapphira out so the church could move forward in power. He did it for the good of the Jerusalem church and those that they were yet to reach. He took out Ananias and Sapphira for the thousands more who were going to believe by a spirit-filled united church going on mission to the nations. He did it as a gracious example to you and me. As far as I know, everyone in this room is still breathing. And so, if God has exposed something in your heart that needs to be deal with, dealt with, there's still opportunity. We must not underestimate the holiness of God. Tozer says this, we've got to think worthily about God. It is morally imperative that we purge from our minds all ignoble concepts of the deity and let Him be the God in our minds that He is in His universe. He is over all. In other words, like the first church, finally, I want to show you from verses 5 and 11 that we need a healthy fear of the Lord to live for the glory of Christ in His church. When Ananias struck down, excuse me, when God struck down Ananias and Sapphira, great fear came upon the whole church and even upon believers, verse 11. Anybody who heard about it, there was a fear that came over their lives. Did you know that God can use judgment in, church, in the church to even lead the world to consider their need of God's salvation? The world needs a God who is holy and actually cares about His holiness. Not a dead God who doesn't do anything, but a God who stands in defense of His name. We serve a gracious God, yes, but His grace comes with the courage to confront our sins. He is not a God that leads us to ignore them. And I believe wholeheartedly that the neglect of these matters in the church in America is why the church is so weak today. What the church needs is not just a gracious God, but a gracious God who is still holy. He is our God and whom we serve in fear. Now, Luke does not describe this fear of the Lord as something that's unhealthy, but as something that is good. Peterson says a healthy, it's a healthy sense of awe for God. Keener adds this, fear is the normal reaction to God's judgment in the scriptures, signifying the reception of the message regarding the holiness that God expects. The church that fears the Lord will desire the purity that flows from a love of Christ, which produces a powerful witness to Him in the world. One of the ways we demonstrate the fear of the Lord is by welcoming accountability in our lives through our local church. Healthy churches 
understand that what we believe and how we behave matter to God. It's why healthy churches have a statement of faith and a church covenant. It's why when they welcome members, they say, this is what we believe, here we stand, and this is how we're going to behave, and we're going to encourage one another to maintain that standard. Am I saying that we're all going to be perfect all the time? No, but we're going to let God convict us, and we're going to deal with it rather than paper over it, cover it up, and pretend that we're something that we're not, and get struck dead by God. Y'all here this morning? Church hopping and holiness don't go together. You'll never lean into the holiness that God has for you if you keep on leaving at the first sign of, I didn't like that song. I didn't like where they worshiped today. God built you for community, and the community is the way that He holds you accountable so that you will persevere in your walk with Christ. So here's a question for us this morning. Do we fear the Lord? If you've been saved by God's grace, in a sense, your name is Ananias. Yahweh is gracious. But are you taking His grace for granted? Are you putting off joining a church because you are reserving rights to yourself that a Christian willingly surrenders for the sake of Christ and His people? Is there a part of the Bible or the implications of the Bible that you are willfully ignoring or rejecting in your marriage, in your workplace, in your relationship with the church? Is there something that you're gossiping or grumbling about or harboring in your heart that it's long past time to confess and get over so that the church can move forward in power? Are you being faithful to your spouse? Is there a sin that you need help to overcome? And as we give the invitation in just a moment, maybe you'd come and say, Pastor, I just need help. Are you giving what you said you would give with the right motivation? Are you giving from the joy and for the joy of the Lord? I want every Christian to find that place where what you give is ridiculous and you love it. I don't want you to give a set amount, a set percentage. I want you to find the place where you have such a wellspring of gratitude for what Jesus did in you that you just keep on giving for the glory of God, and the world would say, that guy's crazy. And you'd say, no, what's crazy is that God came down and died for me. Are you serving for you, or are you serving for Jesus? Are you here for you, or are you here for Jesus? The gospel tells us that God became sin, that Christ became sin, so that our sin could be removed and forgiven, which means we don't have to be hypocrites. We are sinners. And when Satan accuses you that you're a sinner, I like what Martin Luther said, when Satan tells me a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably. Why? Because Christ died for sinners. So whatever it is that God has confronted you with this morning, I pray 
that you would reclaim the gracious gospel of Christ, that you would be freed from wanting to lie, steal, or deceive, that the gospel would make you honest and generous, that it would set your mind not on the glory that you can get out of the church right now, but the glory that will be revealed when Christ comes. My prayer for us as our worship team comes is this. God, would you strike us with a vision of your holiness that arrests and captivates our hearts and makes us eager to confess our sin, to flee from our hypocrisy, that your word, God, might go forth in power, that your son might be magnified, and that we would be bold in preaching the gospel, that many more might be saved. Yahweh, would you be gracious. Wherever you are, whatever you need to do, I beg you not to leave the way you came. God in heaven, this is not an easy text to preach. Neither is it an easy text to live and to be confronted by. God, thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that we still have breath in our lungs. Forgive us where we failed you. And God, give us the liberty and the joy to live for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.